Hello and welcome to Spiraling Upwards, where we are in pursuit of real holiness of life as a daily response to grace in the companionship of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the love of God the Father. I am Father Robert Healy, and I am delighted to welcome you to episode 10. Today we will be talking about governing the chariot. And this is as a follow-up to last week's discussion of uh, training the horses. Right? We, if you remember last week, we spoke about how we have these different passions, these different appetites, and they're good, uh, but they have to be properly ordered. And the reason they have to be properly ordered is because they can be very powerful. And if they're not properly ordered, if they're not obedient to the intellect and the will, to what I know to be right and good in my mind, and what I've chosen to do in accord with that in my will, then they can be very disastrous. If I run around uh, by my own passions, if I am like a charioteer who has lost the, the reins, you know, and it's just the horses are running pell-mell wherever they want to go, over rocks, over, you know, through fences, uh, oh, yeah, it's going to be disastrous. And so what I want to do is I want to have control over the chariot horses, like a charioteer who is wisely not only holding on to the reins and making them mind, but in fact has been training the horses for some time so that the horses respond to his every wish. Just a little bit of a, and they start to move forward. Just a, whoa, and they slow down. He's not having to yank on the reins because the slightest little tap of the rein sets them in a new direction. A little flick of the rip of the whip moves them forward. He doesn't have to beat them with the whip from behind because they want to do his will. And, and so just the slightest movement on his part uh, produces this easy movement around the course, in and out and through the other chariots. That's what's so exciting about chariot racing in the ancient world uh, and why it is... Uh, is something that, uh, in spite of how dangerous it was, uh, drew really big crowds. It was because uh, to see these horses driving at breakneck speed in absolute obedience to the will of the charioteer was pretty exciting. Now, the reason we are going into this, and the reason why we talked about this last week, this training of the horses, is because I want to reach a goal. There is a particular place I'm trying to get to. This might seem like it goes without saying. But as a matter of fact, it's actually quite important. Uh, if I suppose I'm the charioteer and I get the horses out of their stalls and I attach them to the chariot, and after I have uh, properly harnessed them in, uh, I get into the chariot and I take the reins and I think, hmm, where would I like to go? Hmm, I wonder where I should go. Hmm. You might well ask me, why did you go through all this effort? What was the whole point of getting the horses attached to the chariot, of all the training, of all the preparation you've been making for this moment when you harness them to the chariot if you don't have any place to go? You know, I, I, I need to run the race or I need to get to the grocery store in my chariot. <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever drove a chariot to the grocery store. I suspect not. 
But I think that the reason that anyone has ever attached horses to a chariot was because he wanted those horses to move his chariot somewhere. And whether it be in war or in tournament or simply to show off how big and powerful uh, his horses were and how obedient they are to him, every single person who has ever attached a horse to a chariot or to a wagon or put an engine in a car has done it in order to move that car somewhere, to go someplace. If I'm going to be like my nephews and they get on the four-wheeler and they don't need the key to the four-wheeler because they're far too small to, to drive it, but they can sit on the back of the four-wheeler and go, and make all the sound effects and have a great deal of fun. Then, then I'll just leave the horses in the stall and I'll get in the back of the chariot and yeah, yeah, whoosh, 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 and I'll have a blast just yanking on the reins and uh, throwing the whip and, and not going anywhere. But the whole point of getting in a chariot is to go someplace. And that, uh, that is because I would rather be pulled there by the by the power of the horses then simply um pull e- either walk or take um or take the traces on my shoulders and pull the chariot myself i would i would rather be pulled there because it's so much easier and so as a matter of fact this is this is an important part of driving a chariot is having a goal having some place that i got to go uh, why do I put the horses in the traces? I want to participate in the chariot race. I want to earn the trophy. I want to uh, accomplish great things. You might say the same thing to a football player. Why do you go to practice day after day after day after day? Why do you uh, practice punting? Or why do you practice catching the ball? Or why do you ca- pra- practice running into things and pushing things that are very heavy? Why do you do all that? It's so that they can play the game. Because if they don't want to play the game, they wouldn't go through all that effort. If they didn't want to do something that's hard and it takes this kind of muscle and this particular kind of strength, um, then they would be served as well to just sit on the couch and eat potato chips. But if they want, to, in fact, to accomplish the victory that they're looking for in playing the game, then it requires them to go through a lot of effort and deny themselves all sorts of things and take all sorts of of hits and push all sorts of heavy objects in order to become strong, in order to become powerful, in order to accomplish the goal that they have in mind. So the goal is worth talking about. This is why even before last week's discussion of uh, driving the chariot horses, we opened the, the discussion of the goal being perfection, of saying, uh, I want to be perfect. And what does that perfection look like? Well, I'd like to take our conversation at this point into the Gospel of Luke. Our Lord, in the sixth ta- chapter of, of St. Luke's Gospel, has some wonderful things to say to us about the very good which we are trying to accomplish in driving this chariot forward, in making the horses obey. And that good is actually simply the good of being good, of being good people. If I want to be a person who is capable of doing the good uh, when I want to do it, um, instead of 
uh, being faced with an opportunity of doing something good and being too petty or too lazy or too selfish or too um, something, having something that is getting in the way of my actually being able to accomplish the good that I desire and to do that every time. So here's our Lord. This is chapter 6 of St. Luke's Gospel, verse 43 and following. There is no sound tree that will yield withered fruit, no withered tree that will yield sound fruit. Every tree is known by its proper fruit. Figs are not plucked from thorns, nor grapes gathered from briar bushes. A good man utters what is good from his heart's store of goodness. The wicked man from his heart's store of wickedness can utter nothing but what is evil. It is from the heart's overflow that the mouth speaks. Now, if we stop right there for a moment, we just say, okay, notice, when our Lord is saying that, uh, by, but that by the fruits that we give, we know the kind of tree that we are, it's not to say that the fruit makes the tree what it is, that, that if an orange tree would simply start growing apples, it'd become an apple tree. No, it's the, the fruit is not what makes the tree an orange tree, it's what reveals it to be an orange tree. If I see a tree, and I know it's a citrus tree, but I'm not quite sure if it's an orange tree or a lemon tree or a grapefruit tree, because I don't know the difference just from looking at one citrus tree or another. What I need is I need it to put off fruit, and the fruit tells me what kind of tree it is. Now, oh, it's a lime tree. Uh, in in my observ- observation of the fruit, I see what kind of tree it is. It's not that the fruit makes it that kind of tree. Now, when it comes to our the own uh, the fruit that we make, the fruit that we give, I think the same thing follows, and this is something which is actually spoken about in the uh, in the philosophical tradition. This is a distinction in in our theology between acts of virtue and virtuous acts. That is to say, if a man comes up to me and he speaks to me something true, does that make him an honest man? Because in this one instance, he said the truth. He might be a dishonest man speaking honestly for once to try to, to, try to get my uh, favor, to try to make me believe that he always tells the truth so that next time he can tell me a lie. Okay, well, that might be the case. Or it might be that he is actually an honest man speaking from his natural honesty, from the fact that he naturally is inclined, that he's, he's habitually inclined to be honest. Now, what we would call a virtuous act is an act that is of this particular kind of virtue. So it might be an act of honesty, like speaking the truth. Or it might be an act of courage, uh, taking up something which is difficult and, in, and in enduring it for the sake of the good. Uh, it might be an act of, of uh, self-denial. But I'm, I might be the most selfish, the most uh, self-centered person in the world. And this act of self-denial is not really coming from the possession of virtue that I have and, and the mortification and, and the temperance, but it's just one moment where I, who am a very intemperate man, am trying to make myself do something rather temperate. You see? And so this is, would be the distinction we have in our theology 
between a virtuous act, which is not necessarily coming from a virtuous man, but is the act itself is virtuous, as opposed to an act of virtue, which is an action that comes from the virtue of a man. An honest man always says that which is honest. A man who is patient always acts patiently. And so this one instance of his patience is not him bottling it up and holding it back, you know, any more than, uh, you know, a man who habitually uh, governs his tongue so he does not speak in a way that is wrong. A man who habitually governs his actions or even his thoughts in a way that is right and properly ordered to, you know, in a way that is in keeping with the will of God and the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, such a man uh, is naturally going to, I keep saying naturally, I don't mean just it's naturally, it might be something he's had to acquire through a lot of effort and a lot of very vigorous trial. Um, but he has developed the virtue by repeatedly, and every time, even when it hurts, speaking the truth. He's become an honest man. And now he would not lie to save his life. Why? Because it's so opposed to him that just to tell a lie would be like stabbing himself. It hurts so bad. Whereas the dishonest man has no problem telling a lie. And so at the very beginning of his striving to become an honest man, he's going to be doing things which we would call virtuous acts, you know, these the these virtuous acts of being honest, of speaking the truth, while he's not himself a virtuous man. This might be just the one time of the week that he figured out that he really should speak the truth. But if he if he repeats it again and again and again, he can acquire the virtue of honesty by which now he is now he is a virtue, now that he has the virtue, every time he speaks, even when he's not speaking um, with the intention of telling the truth, it's always true. It's not like he has to have his mind focused on, okay, I can't tell a lie right now, because every time he speaks, even when he's not speaking, he's honest. You know, a dishonest man is dishonest even when he's not talking, even when he's listening, even when he's uh, considering what are the next words he should say. He, his inclination is to lie. And so he has to overcome that inclination in, in order to be a man who is honest. Now, what I've been getting at in drawing these things forward is that the goal of being a good man is not quite synonymous with the goal of producing good fruit. You see, if I want to be a you know, I've, I don't have the virtue of modesty, you know, because the way I dress or the way I behave or the way I speak, the way I draw other people people's attention has a tendency to draw their attention to things which are not modest and not wholesome. You know, uh, a person can be immodest without uh, dressing immodestly if the way he or she acts or speaks is immodest. And so... Um, you know, just to take this as one example, the modest person um, is someone who is not just striving to be modest. The modest person is the person whose desires have been conformed to that which is modest, whose heart has been changed little by little 
through the grace of God and through the desire to be honest, uh, to, through the desire to be modest, that every word and every action and every thought would be some such as, as gives due honor and helps the people who see them or hear them to be modest, uh, to be virtuous, to be chaste, to have their mind in the right place. Uh, so the people who hear me speak or people who see me act uh, aren't drawn into, you know, by, by the jokes that I tell or by the suggestions that I make uh, to impure thoughts. And so this is the being modest is not just, and I think this is a very, needs to be said, because what is the first thing that we do? If I want to be an honest man, and then I always try to tell the truth. Yes, that's the virtuous act. That is going to make me an honest man if I persevere, if I continue. But I have to allow my heart to be changed. I have to allow my purposes to be changed so that I would never tell a lie. And if I am put in the position where it would seem to be easier to tell a lie than to tell the truth, then I know that at all, whatever happens, I must say that which I know is strictly true. Um, even though I don't have to say everything, maybe saying everything would hurt someone. Um, and so I need to hold back something. And, you know, this would be called um, making a mental reservation. But uh, where, I, where I reserve something to my mind, which doesn't need to be said. But what I'm going to say, and everything that I do say, is uh, strictly honest. Then, then you see, I will not be in, I not be worried about whether the, did, did, was that a lie? Did I tell a lie or not? Will I be? I won't be worried about the things that I say because I know that I have no intention of lying. I have no intention of saying anything contrary to what I believe to be true. And so if someone, if someone challenges me, say, you're telling a lie, I say, no, I'm not. In fact, I was telling the truth very strictly. Uh, I realized that I, I need to give you just a little more explanation, so let me do that. Uh, and, and in this pursuit, therefore, of becoming a good man, a good woman, someone who, uh, whose words and actions and thoughts are the product of a heart that is in the right place, you see, we actually attain uh, to the virtue that we are going for. Instead of simply pursuing virtuous acts, isolated and apart from the, the state of the mind and the state of the heart which produces them. The fruit doesn't make the man good or make the man bad. It reveals his goodness or his badness. It reveals his selfishness or his selflessness. And so by looking at the fruit uh, that I am giving, I can, in fact, um, see how well I'm doing. But that's not the point. The point of, of striving for, for virtue is not simply to have the horse's mind, the charioteer. It is for the charioteer to know and to desire to move the chariot exactly where it needs to go uh, and then be able to because the horses are docile and obedient to his will. <laughs>